The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 75 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of John White and Keith Morris, who were both murdered in January 1969 while picnicking alongside a secluded creek in Travis County, Texas. When the killer was identified, the community was shocked. We'll dive into John and Keith's story after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Hope Grimsley. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. John Albert White grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, where his father, Jack E. White, was a prominent lawyer. John was valedictorian at Corpus Christi Ray High School and attended the University of Texas in Austin. He was an avid surfer and described as warm, gentle, and scholarly. After high school, John served two years in the Peace Corps and spent one year in Micronesia, a chain of thousands of small islands in the South Pacific. To say he liked to travel and was adventurous would be an understatement. Keitha Jane Morris was born on May 2, 1949, to John and Thelma Morris, and grew up in White Deer, Texas, a small town in the state's panhandle. Her father was an elementary school principal in White Deer. Keitha was a beautiful and vibrant young woman with dreams of becoming an actress, and she attended the University of Texas. One day in late 1968, she was participating in a skit presented at a November Student Union boycott when John White walked up to her, smiled, and said hi. She thought he was just trying to pick her up, but she eventually agreed to go out with him, and the two hit it off. John and Keitha began dating in December 1968. At around 2 p.m. on January 8, 1969, 
The couple decided to go to nearby Bull Creek for a picnic. They were joined by another couple, David Bond and Don Horak. The two couples walked along the creek over the bedrock shelves and spread blankets on the ground, about 500 yards west of Lakewood Drive. When David and Don said their goodbyes at 5.30 p.m., both John and Keith were alive and well. But just 30 minutes later at 6 p.m., two University of Texas students, Charles Greminger and B.J. Smith, went to the Bull Creek looking for a place to host a party. What they found was the body of John White face down in the creek. At first, they thought it was a mannequin until they saw the feet. They ran to their car and started to drive to town, but saw rancher Connie Simons on horseback and ran to tell him that they had found a man dead in the water. Simons raced back to his home and called the Travis County Sheriff's Office. Deputy Gary Simpson was the first officer to arrive at the scene. Simons, Greminger, and Smith led him to the body. It wasn't until a few hours later that Keitha's housemates informed the authorities that she never made it to skit practice and had been with John at the creek. At 1 a.m. on January 9, 1969, searchers with flashlights cased the area around Bull Creek for Keitha Morris. They found footprints, but they were very small and they didn't put a lot of stock into them because many people had been at the creek that day, but they weren't sure who the prints were from. They found no sign of the young actress and extended the search statewide. At 1.30 p.m. on January 9th, a Utah couple fishing at Inks Lake in Burnett County found Keitha's nude body in the water. The location is about 60 miles from Bull Creek. Autopsies on both victims revealed John White had been shot in the back of the neck with a 38 caliber gun, and Keitha had either died from strangulation or drowning, either late on January 8th or in the early morning hours of January 9th. The murder investigation began, but authorities had little to go on. They questioned the victim's friends and family and discovered that Keitha had broken up with a couple of boyfriends before she dated John White. But police interviewed those men and gave them polygraph tests, which they passed, and those former boyfriends were quickly ruled out. The community was shocked at this senseless and tragic double murder, and they wondered who would do such a thing. A few days later, an Austin gun dealer reported selling a 38 caliber gun to 21-year-old Clyde Durbin Jr., a friend of the dealer's son, on January 4th. Durbin returned the gun to him on January 9th, saying the gun malfunctioned. The dealer noticed that Durbin was scratched up and limping, and it caught his attention. The dealer replaced the gun with a second gun, but Durbin also returned that gun. The dealer refunded Durbin the money and reclaimed the gun, and then eventually turned it over to police. The gun dealer was right to be suspicious, and so were the police. It wasn't long before investigators arrested Durbin and spent several hours questioning him. Durbin's arrest was a shock to the community, as he too was college age and was a University of Texas engineering tech. He was described by people that knew him as average, he liked karate and sports cars, and he had no criminal history. Durbin was very cooperative, and it didn't take long to admit to the killings in a lengthy statement to investigators. Durbin detailed how he approached John and Keith at Bull Creek, yielding a gun and demanding money. John grabbed for the gun, and it went off, killing John. Keith had tried to run off, but Durbin grabbed her and brought her back to where John's body was. Durbin claimed that Keith offered to help him get away and hide John's body, but they heard voices nearby and they decided to leave. He also said that Keith willingly got in his car because she feared he would kill her. Durbin reassured her, saying he would only take her somewhere 
higher up and leave her there so she could be picked up in the morning. But at some point, Keitha tried to escape, so Durbin squeezed her throat in an attempt to knock her out, but it didn't work. He tried hitting her on the head, but she was still conscious, so he put his elbow on her throat until she passed out. But she came too, and Durbin gagged her. Keitha attempted to escape one more time, so Durbin tried manually strangling her, but he struggled to kill her, so he dragged her to the lake and strangled her in the water until she died. Durbin claimed he never raped or threatened to rape Keitha, even though she was found nude. The medical examiner said there was no evidence suggesting otherwise. Clyde Durbin was ultimately found guilty of murder and sentenced to 99 years in prison. He then accepted a plea deal with Burnett County prosecutors, a life sentence versus death, with Durbin agreeing not to protest when he became eligible for parole. This agreement was not put into writing, something that would come back to haunt loved ones of the victims. Travis County authorities, who were not aware of the deal, filed protests in the 1970s and 80s when Durbin was up for parole and agreed to withdraw them, but the convicted killer was denied parole. Durbin filed appeals throughout the years, asking to be released because prosecutors had breached their deal. By 2002, his 99-year sentence was cut short due to good behavior and time served. That year, U.S. District Judge Sam Sparks gave Durbin the right to withdraw his plea, which meant the state had to retry him or set him free. Shockingly, in August 2004, Clyde Durbin Jr. was released from prison after serving 35 years for the violent killings. News of the release shocked many people familiar with the case, especially family members of the victims. One of those who was shocked was John White's niece, Wendy, who was just six years old when her uncle was murdered. She still vividly remembers the moment that her father got the heartbreaking phone call that John was dead. Wendy sat down with me to discuss her uncle's case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for joining me to discuss your Uncle John's case on The Murder of My Family. Hi. Uh, thank you for coming on. I just want to start out by saying, you know, when you reached out to me, I 
the first thing I notice is the age of this case, and it seems like there's a lot of older cases that, uh, for one reason or another, are being solved or they're not solved, but one way or another they're still um, important all these years later. This one from 1969, you were just a child around six years old, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. How well do you remember your Uncle John? So I have I have very specific memories of him. He had a little green um, Triumph Spitfire car, I think, <laughs> and um, he used to drive around in Austin, particularly around. I can remember going to the Peter Pan Mini Golf Putt Putt place with him. There was like a big Peter Pan sculpture there, and he used to always take me there because my name was Wendy, and we would play mini golf together. Um, you know, I can remember playing with him quite a bit, and that he was a really you know, one of the adults in my life that was engaged in um, giving me attention. So when I was a little bit older, we moved my my father, who is his brother, my mother, my father, and I moved to Brazil, to Rio. And I can very distinctly remember uh, the day that uh, we found out that he had been killed. Because it was the first, first time I ever heard my father cry or see my father cry, which is you know, a very scary thing, I think, for any child is to see particularly a father cry. So that's sort of etched into your memory, it sounds like. It is, very much so. I remember I remember the phone rang in the middle of the night, and that would be, for you know, obviously a strange thing back in the day when you had landlines. <laughs> and I can remember, um, you know, this noise, this is hearing somebody screaming, uh, and it was, going out into the hallway and seeing my father lying on the floor with the phone next to him, just sobbing. And I was scared. I was very, very scared by it. I still have nightmares. What kind of news did your father get? Did did he get full details right away? Or was it just the the basic, your, your, your brother's gone? Or how did that news come about? So it's interesting that you asked that. So my father has died too since he died when I was in my 20s and um, of cancer. But my mother, who very distinctly remembers this, she and I have talked about it a few times. She says that she actually doesn't know still to this day who it was that actually talked to him or who called him. But they did find out that he had been killed by someone um, and that, uh, you know, that he had been murdered. So, um, but I don't know necessarily what the details were. And I know that that was then a subsequent reason for my parents to decide to leave Brazil and come back to Texas. Being a child, I would assume that they probably tried to protect you or not share too much of that details or information with you at that age. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was an only child. I was an only grandchild, too. And um, my grandparents were, were pretty young when I was born. They were, I think, 42 years old. My parents were 22. So. But I can remember, like, you know, asking many times, you know, what happened to Uncle John? And I would always get a different answer. I'd get like, oh, uh, you know, the, the nebulous sort of, oh, he's gone to heaven, which, you know, even at six years old, you sort of know that that, 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 that doesn't seem right, um, that someone would just, you know, vanish into heaven. Um, and then I was told for a while that he had fallen at a picnic and hit his head, uh, which of course made me afraid to go on picnics. <laughs> but um, 
uh, he, you know, I, I would always get different. I'd get that he was in a car accident. I never really got the actual real story until I was a teenager and looked it up myself. And then I started asking questions about what happened. So you, but you, it wasn't something that anyone talked about. So it sounds like you got to a point where your your natural curiosity, you want to know more. And if people aren't sharing with you, you wanted to try and find out yourself what you could. Sure. And, you know, when, when everyone, when the reaction is complete dead silence from your family and you know that at least I knew that it was something really uh, difficult for them to talk about and even think about. And I think one of the things, too, that I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a child, um, just because of, you know, my, the way my parents were. They were in college and then getting their master's and their PhD. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I can remember that one thing that was interesting was that whenever someone lost a child in Corpus Christi uh, in the community, they would invariably end up at my grandparents' house to sort of get guidance or to cry on their shoulders about what to do. How do you how do you live through a tragedy like a child leaving your life quickly or before planned? Huh. So you know, car accidents, you know, uh, violent deaths, suicides they seem to sort of become a lightning rod for those conversations with others. Wow. And, and you and I, before we started recording this, we were talking a little bit about like a ripple effect. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't really share with you a lot at the time when you were younger, but now looking back and having uh, the knowledge that you have, did this have like a lasting ripple effect on your family? Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it, to a certain extent, still has an effect on our family. So, um, you know, there's, um, well, first of all, there's the marker of that, just the death itself, right? So uh, my grandparents were Baptist and pretty in, pretty deep in their faith, and I think they felt um, oftentimes like the faith would get them through things. I think, uh, you know, it did to a certain extent, but as I, as you know, they had two younger daughters who were 14 and 12 when it happened. I know that my grandmother and my grandfather to a certain extent checked out for many years of being parents just because they didn't have the emotional energy, I think, to invest in them, which, you know, I think they suffered for that reason. Um, you know, they didn't really ever discuss it with my father, who was the older brother he was four years older, um, and it, it just, you know, over the years, it was something that I felt when I had children, when I had my first child, I just remember always thinking, you know, how incredible my grandparents were to actually, you know, get up and live their lives, um, how much that affected me as a parent to think about, you know, how sad it would be to lose your own child at such a young age at 21 in such a violent way. Just when you think you've kind of gotten them, I think he was a little bit older than that. Um, but you know, to at least to have your child get to college and think that you're pretty much on the way and then suddenly have them just be violently taken away from you and never see them again, you know, 
as a parent is just such a scary thought. Um, so I'm, I think about it a lot, a lot. And then, and then also just coincidentally, uh, when I was pregnant with my first child in 2003, I remember that's when, um, the person who committed the murder, um, you know, came up for the discussions and parole. And there were articles in the paper again, the Austin American Statesman, you know, published a lot about the case, um, what the, what the sort of, uh, I don't know what the, what the, what the decision was, what, what the, what the rationale was for releasing him, which was a technicality. Um, and, uh, you know, and published the name Clyde Durbin numerous times and, uh, inaccuracies about the case, such as that my grandparents, that the whole family was deceased, um, that no one was around to care anymore, which was totally not the case. My grandparents were still living in the same house that they've been living in all throughout. No one ever contacted them, uh, you know, but we had to then deal with the fact that, you know, Clyde Durbin was back in society, living in his house. Yeah, and that's, that's a shocking you thing. Know. And I, I definitely want to get to that. Um, a, a little yeah. bit about your uncle that, that I read. Um, he was a popular, good-looking guy, college student. He planned on being an attorney. Um, so his uh, life was definitely cut short. You mentioned he was in his early 20s. He had his whole life ahead of him. And then y- y- your family does get the uh, what, what seems like justice um, in the fact that he eventually confessed and was arrested and – uh, went went to uh, through the court uh, proceedings and then was sentenced to life in prison. Did your your family think, okay, you know, this isn't going to bring John back, but it at least the person did this isn't going to hurt someone else. Um, I think so. I think there was also. I mean, I do remember at one point having a discussion with my father or my mother about it, and that. You know, there was a discussion about, you know, because it was such a violent crime, and I'm sure you've done some research on it in case you didn't, you know, essentially what happened was is my uncle, who was this, you know, really nice, good-looking guy, he'd been in the Peace Corps for a couple of years, he'd gone from high school to the Peace Corps, not because he was avoiding the draft, (laughs) um, but because he actually was really somebody who wanted to give back. He very much took on the mission of, you know, what Kennedy said of, uh, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He was very engaged in the Peace Corps, went to the South Pacific, came back, went to Haverford College where my dad was, and then transferred to Austin, Texas. And there he met a girl that he apparently was had a huge crush on, finally got his nerve up to ask her out, and that was Keitha, Keitha Morris. And they went on a picnic, uh, first date, uh, and they were taking pictures uh, on this date. They, he had a camera with him and, you know, Clyde Durbin apparently came out, saw them, decided that he wanted Keitha, went and bought a gun at a store. You know, no one asked him any questions, just bought a gun, went out, said to my uncle, went back to Lake Austin, you know, saw my uncle and said, you know, leave the girl. And my uncle said no. And he shot him and killed him. And then he took Keitha and, uh, forced her into his car and some people actually saw him doing that and just assumed it was a lover's quarrel. So there were witnesses. 
Um, and then apparently he took her somewhere and spent three days torturing her, tried to rape her, um, had some performance issues apparently, but you know, he very much tortured her and then strangled, killed her, threw her into the river with her hands tied and they found her body. Um, apparently way in Louisiana several days later. It was a very violent crime. And it was a crime that actually, when I, um, when I was, uh, when the, when Clyde Durbin came up for this parole hearing, uh, my, I called the state's attorney's office in Texas to say, you know, this is, what can I do? Is there anything I can do? Can I speak for the family? You know, can I do something? to uh, discourage him being released. And he said to me, he said, actually, I was in law school when this case happened and it was such a big deal to me and to my classmates. And he said, it's actually one of the reasons why I entered into this side of the law because of this case. Um, So it it had a very long, I think, effect in Texas um, because of, you know, the, the news around it. And then there were a lot of things that happened too, like the, um, the police sold the pictures to the media um, of the crime. Um, there were published descriptions of the jurors that were being chosen. Just a lot of things that if you look at it that now we don't do, but, you know, I think there were some precedents to the way that the case was handled. You know, the one thing that I do remember is, as I mentioned before, my grandparents were very religious and my grandmother had said to my dad that, Uh, that they actually asked for the death penalty to not be given to Clyde Durbin uh, because, as she said, you know, I don't see any reason for another woman to lose her son because of this. I don't want the death penalty. So apparently they pled to not have the death penalty with the promise that he would never be released from jail. Yeah, that's that's the the shocking twist. As I was reading through everything and seeing how heinous this this crime was, yeah, you know, Texas is a is a a death penalty state, obviously, and not to get into that whole debate, but um, you, you would think that if if your family's cooperating and saying, "Hey, spare him his life, just ensure that he's not going to go free," and then that that deal goes through, it must be awfully shocking. Years later, when all of a sudden that's uh, taken off the table. Yeah. Yeah. With no, with no discussion with you. Right. So no, no one calling us, nobody telling us it was just literally in the paper. And it, I, I think, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, this was the result of, of some kind of tech, some kind of error in, in a, the proceedings, a technicality or whatever you want to call it. Can you explain yeah. a little bit more about that? Uh, what, what happened exactly? So I'm, I'm not obviously a lawyer. <laughs> uh, I work in completely different field, but I, I will say, I think that what happened was something around that um, uh, they had agreed that they would never, that there would never be any ability for him to seek parole for good behavior or whatever. Um, and that th- that they would never contest if for some reason there was a reason to appeal. Um, and I guess that was never written down between the change in who was overseeing the 
the agreement. So there was like, you know, whoever it was made the agreement, then left to go do something, you know, go on in their career. And a new person came in and took over. And in that process, the actual agreement was not written down. Um, and that was the technicality that they would not, that it was not written down, that they would not appeal any ask for parole, hmm. even though there wasn't supposed to be any ability to get parole, but, um, or to be let go. And, um, and that they actually did a few times. He, for good behavior or whatever, obviously his father, his, he came from a very wealthy family. I think his father was like CEO of Abbott Labs. Um, and they, you know, kept the pressure up to try to get their son released all these years. And a few times there was a discussion and a hearing and someone would show up and say, you know, not supposed to have parole and it would be dropped. And then this was the technicality that they, they then uncovered, I think, in 2003, which subsequently made it possible for him to be released. It's just shocking that despite admissions of what he did and and all of that stuff that they would still choose to, to release him. And that and that's, um, as far as we know, right, he's living his life free and, and untethered uh, out yeah. there someplace? Yeah, sometime, someplace, yep. And I believe outside of Houston. You had mentioned some of your family, uh, your dad and, and, and some other family members, um, did pass away, but your grandparents were, were alive. Were they still alive when he was released? Are they still alive now? Yes. So they had, to no, they're not this. anymore. Okay. But, but yes, they, they were, they were, yeah. So had, they were they, both alive. They had to deal with this shocking news that this guy was getting out. Yep. They did. And how hard was that for them? Um, you know, it wasn't really something that I necessarily discussed with them. My my grandfather was always somebody who was a man of few words, um, an incredible human being, a very kind um, person, uh, and you know, he was the sort of person that you would probably avoid having. I always felt like I avoided having conversations that would either cause him pain, make him sad or disappoint. Uh, he was one of those people that you just would never want to, you know, hurt in any way. Um, my grandmother, you know, could pretty much talk about anything. And I, I think I do recall having a conversation with her about how she was feeling and and she she said, well, it just doesn't seem really fair that, you know, John is dead. And this man, she never said his name. She said, you know, this man is is free. And I think that was pretty much the only time we ever talked about it. And I, I you know, I think I, I also sort of went back and forth on whether or not I should try to make a bigger deal about it. You know, if I should really... I was living in Illinois at the time, you know, should in Chicago, should I, you know, try to see if I could get media attention or something about the fact that he'd been released. And like I said, I was pretty pregnant and I made sort of the decision at that time that I needed to focus on other things. 
Um, but it was, you know, it just seems very unfair that uh, someone could do something like this and that the promise from the state and from the law would be that he would never be released. And, and he was. That's got to be difficult position for you to be in, to be trying to balance your life and, and living your life with trying to um, keep uh, some kind of justice on the table for, for your uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and the real shame here is that there's, two young lives that are just their whole futures are taken from them. And, and then the person that did this winds up just living a normal life out on the street. Yep. Exactly. Uh, Is there, and I don't know if there's any, um, any way, can he be recharged or resentenced or is this one of those situations? Do you know where it's like, that would be double jeopardies? Yeah, it would be double jeopardy. I mean, he was found guilty of the crime, both crimes, right? I mean, all the crimes. I'm sure there was more than just, you know, one thing that he was found guilty of, you know, uh, rape, torture, murder, you know, all the, you know, probably a laundry list of things that he did, kidnapping. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I, I'm sure that, you know, he was found guilty of all those. That's not the issue. The issue is the sentencing, right? So that's the piece that would not be, you know, they wouldn't put him back in jail because of it or back in prison. I know there's a difference between jail and prison. <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep saying jail, but, um, you know, he wouldn't be put back in prison because he's been released. He wasn't found not guilty. He was, uh, you know, essentially let go because of a small procedural snafu. Yeah. It's frightening to know that something just uh, not crossing an I or dot, you know, totting a I or crossing a T could could allow someone like that to walk out of prison. Yeah, from so long ago, I know, and that, uh, and then also, uh, you know, that if you have money, a lot of money, you can keep pressure on and continue to try to find ways and loopholes to allow criminals to be back on the street. Oh, very scary. So, and and obviously we don't want the focus to be on the the person that did this, uh, you know, but instead be on the victims, be on your uncle. What what do you want, what would you like for, uh, or what would your family like for your Uncle John's legacy to be? Oh, gosh. You know, he was, he loved to surf which is, uh, you know, Corpus Christi, Texas is not necessarily probably like the biggest place for surfing in the world, but he was, you know, one of the, the joke was that he was one of the first surfers <laughs> in Corpus Christi. I mean, he's uh, he's got recognition. There's a surf museum down there where his picture is all over uh, in the museum. Um, you know, and he was, a, he was a really sort of good guy who wanted uh, to make the world a better place. He was a peacemaker, and actually on his tombstone, it actually said, "Blessed are." it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll inherit the earth. I think particularly now, in the situation that we're in, uh, in the U.S., with there being such a rift, I think, you know, I think I would want him to be remembered for that. I would want him to be remembered for someone who would have, I think, really made a difference. Um, very, very idealistic and aspirational. Uh good person you know it's a tragedy when you see 
you know, people that can do some good and have some good intentions that never get a chance to fulfill those uh, pursuits. Exactly. Oh. Well, I, I do appreciate you coming on. I know this sounds yeah. like it still hits home for you. Uh, and um, again, I, I don't know what kind of justice there will be in this world, um, but I, ho- I hope that somehow your family does find some kind of peace at, at some point. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it does, it does really continue. I mean, it does have ripple effects for many, many years, you know, the, the dynamics between everyone. It's hard to talk about even now. Um, you know, it's, it, it carries through. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. I'd like to thank Debbie Buck at truecrimediva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. As I wrap up, I just want to take this time to wish everyone listening a safe and happy holiday season. I'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family in the new year on January 9th, 2021. So I'll see you then. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.